If you love anything about the horror genre in movies, you have the big six to thank for that. Dracula, Frankenstein, The Wolfman, The Mummy, The Bride of Frankenstein, and The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Universal Studios made these creatures a household name and giving actors like Bella Lugosi, Lon Chaney, and Boris Karloff a creepy place in our hearts. It spawned an entire new generation of film lovers. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. In 1923, a very young Universal Studios, created and led by the motion picture patriarch Carl Lamely, offered up the thriller Hunchback of Notre Dame, featuring popular character actor Lon Chaney. The film boasted lavish sets, an amazing cast, and cutting-edge filming effects. The movie grossed over $3 million, and Universal got a glimpse of the amount of money people would be willing to pay to be frightened. In 1922, the novel by Bram Stoker, Dracula, had been filmed without permission and the film Nosferatu was sued for plagiarism and copyright infringement by Stoker's wife. She won and all the prints of the foreign silent film were ordered to be destroyed. Now we know that didn't happen. I personally have watched this version and it was a far cry from the romanticized image that we are familiar with today but actually more in line with the author's original creation. Universal knew they wanted this story, so they went about things in the correct manner and won the rights legally. They of course wanted Lon Chaney to take the lead role. He unfortunately passed away from throat cancer only a few months prior. Believe it or not, the studio looked everywhere but at Bella Lugosi, who, by the way, was already playing the role in the Broadway version and ended up touring with the troupe. The tour just happened to be in Los Angeles when Universal was searching for their Dracula. Lugosi tried again and again to get the part, but the director just did not want to give him a chance. It wasn't until Lugosi agreed to do the part for a ridiculously low pay that the studio decided to bring him on. Dracula and Lugosi were a huge box office success. Released in February of 1931 at the Roxy in New York, the theater was sold out for the first two weeks. The publicity department placed fainting audience members strategically to ensure continued headlines. It was Bela Lugosi we have to thank for the Dracula we know today. His version opened the door to the thick, almost always imitated accent, the elegant, sophisticated, gentlemanly manner, and the subtleties of fear that you know are there, but you just can't grasp where or why. And while the world recognizes Bela Lugosi as THE Dracula of Draculas, of all the vampire movies to come from Universal, Lugosi only donned the costume two times on film. For Dracula, the original film of 1931, and then again 
1947 for Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. The other Draculas were played by Lon Chaney Jr. and John Carradine. Side note, I'm sure the Carradine name might sound familiar to many of you. You would be correct in assuming that this John Carradine is in fact the patriarch of the Eight Son acting legacy. Interesting piece of trivia, all the things Dracula is known for, the fangs, the widow's peak, bite marks, none of those things showed up in the 1931 version. Lugosi admits to painting on the widow's peak in future appearances, but he actually wore minimal makeup for the original. His piercing stare, by the way, was not created with contacts, but with small pen lights pointed at his eyes while filming. And yes, I know you'll want me to bring this up because everyone wants this brought up. Bela Lugosi was buried in one of his Dracula costumes. However, it was not his wishes. It was decided for him by his son and ex-wife number four, Lillian Arch. After his death, his only son, also a Bela Lugosi, attempted to sell another of the capes at auction, asking for over one point two million dollars. He did not get that amount and was strongly encouraged to donate the item to a moving museum. Frankenstein. The 1931 film classic released only nine months after Dracula is still considered one of the top 50 best in the horror genre and one of the most iconic in the history of film. And that is in part thanks to the creative makeup of Jack P. Pierce. The process to turn character actor Boris Karloff into the green-faced, bolt-sporting monster took four hours each day of filming, and the entire ensemble added an additional 48 pounds to Karloff that he had to tote around. The Frankenstein movie script was based on the stage play version by Peggy Webling, which, of course, was based on the 1818 novel by Mary Shelley. Cinematic history was made with this film because of the lighting special effects, the makeup, and set design, but it was the ability of Karloff's portrayal of what was originally supposed to be a killing machine into an innocent and confused creature thrust into an unknown world that makes this monster story stand out. So well embodied by Karloff, it solicits empathy from the audience that sets him apart from the monster dynasty, and also causes the continued debate even today, keeping the movie timeless, who is the real monster? The one who has been created, or his creator? Anxious to cash in on the popularity of the horror film, sequels for Dracula and Frankenstein Monster were already in the works and not slowing down in the search for new ways to elicit fear, Universal introduced The Mummy, starring Boris Karloff as Imhotep in 1932. It was a time when movie studios could produce new movies every 30 to 45 days. The Mummy was an original script based on the opening of King Tut's tomb in 1922 and the curses that were associated with the event which is another subject that's still discussed these days. Karloff, by this time used to sitting in the makeup chair, found that this character doubled in time as his Frankenstein makeup. Eight hours to put on, 
two hours to get back off. The full complete makeup work of the mummy are really only seen a few times and the rest is only partial makeup. Karloff focused on his monster's humanistic qualities of loneliness and lost love instead of killing for the sake of killing. The 1940s movie The Mummy's Hand was a spin-off of The Mummy, not so much a sequel, and was actually made up of recycled footage from The Mummy, so much so that Karloff's character is clearly seen, but he is not credited as being in the movie at all. This makes The Mummy the only of the big six not to have a trail of sequels in its wake. As far as the big six is concerned, and rounding out our Boris Karloff features, The Bride of Frankenstein comes next in 1935. I'm honestly not sure how she became one of the big six. I guess they needed female representation. But as far as icons go, she is definitely up there. This movie could have been just one of the many Frankenstein monster sequels, but this one can stand on its own. It was in the back of the minds of the creators from the very beginning, and the script is actually considered a continuation from the Mary Shelley novel being one of its subplots, which explains why it may have a slightly better quality script than many that followed. It paid off by becoming one of the greats earning over $2 million at the box office. The New York Times described it as, quote, a grotesque, gruesome tale which, of its kind, is swell. Boris Karloff's genius is revived once again as the monster, the makeup repeated by Jack Pierce upgrading it to reflect the past struggles and injuries creating a continuous timeline, but this time the monster speaks. The audience was anxious for this very moment that Karloff fought against. He felt that the monster shouldn't have a vocabulary, and looking back it's almost laughable. Karloff's foresight had been for all the right reasons, but was of course vetoed. Karloff said publicly, quote, My argument was that if the monster had any impact or charm, it was because he was inarticulate. End quote. They kept his speech to 44 different words, and Karloff was still able to endear his creature to the audience. His performance in this movie is lauded almost as much as the original and considered the best sequel of all time. This film brings back Colin Clive as the excitable Dr. Frankenstein. Director James Whale insisted on his original players and even adjusted the filming to accommodate Clive's broken leg, which is why he's viewed sitting in so many scenes, and his escalating alcohol abuse. Trivia Boris Karloff broke his hip during the shooting as well, and he toughed through all of his scenes, not getting his hip professionally set until the movie's wrap. Which brings us to the She-Monster, played by Elsa Lanchester. She is also seen in the movie's prologue in some versions as the author Mary Shelley. The visual of the bride was a co-creation by director James Whale and makeup artist Jack Pierce. She was based on the Egyptian princess Nefertiti. Her hair was built out on a wire cage and she had to be fitted into her dress and bandages with the assistance of several dressers. And for all of her iconic recognition, her character gets to claim only three minutes of screen time.
You've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people, just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now, I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougeret. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now. Real history. Not just the dates and battles. And I've discovered that others do too. So, I've created a group in Facebook, and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or Type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. Moving along to 1941 with The Wolfman. Now over 10 years in the monster-making game, Universal had it down to a science. With almost 40 horror films made up of sequels and expanding their horror palette, Universal Pictures was at the top of the horror movie mountain. And that even included the 1936 British ban on horror movies. So, when The Wolfman came along as a huge success following the Universal magic, it was no surprise. With an original script created from stories of folklore and myth and Lon Chaney Jr. leading the cast, they knew they were down for another win. This was actually the second werewolf movie by Universal. The first, Werewolf of London, in 1935 starred Henry Hull. It was considered successful, but it was the 1941 version that became the iconic vision of the werewolf that we still conjure up today. And, as with Dracula, many of the werewolf idioms that we are familiar with, such as becoming a werewolf through a bite, transformation under a full moon, killing the beast requiring a silver bullet, didn't show up until later sequels. Also, the idea that werewolves are immortal came up in a later wolf movie, just to be able to keep the sequels rolling. While looking back on this movie with today's eyes, you can see all the slips and the technical faux pas, but back in the day, it was on the cutting edge of special effects. The original Wolfman doesn't show a full transformation, but does show the last few minutes, and there's also a pretty nifty furry foot transformation. The makeup was layered and then filmed, and the process was repeated for 10 hours to get the few minutes we see on screen. But the lap dissolve technique was refined in The Wolfman, but perfected in its many sequels. 
topsy-turvy a bit. Lon Chaney Jr., cashing in on his famous father's name, was actually born Crichton, was the only one of the Universal Monsters who played his character for every appearance in the 1940s and 50s. The Wolfman was released in theaters in December of 1941, only three days after the attack on Pearl Harbor, but still managed to be one of the top-grossing films of 1942. Closing out the Big Six, we begin to see the shift in Monsterland, with the release of The Creature from the Black Lagoon in 1954. The entertainment industry is beginning to embrace the sci-fi trend that will eventually launch such future classics as Tarantula, The Mole People, and The Deadly Mantis. The Creature is the first film that combines science fiction aspects with the docu-realism that makes the audience member wonder, even if just for a moment, that something like this could actually happen. Even going so far as to give the audience an authoritative narration of evolution and the theory of the half-man, half-fish. Interestingly enough, the original script was developed from a rumor that someone had found a specimen of half-man, half-fish swimming in the Amazon. Again, looking back, we see the blunders of a man wearing a rubber suit, but the director, Jack Arnold, uses the fear of the unknown to make this movie a home run in the horror genre. He's quoted as saying, It plays upon a basic fear that people have about what might be lurking below the surface of any body of water. It's the fear of the unknown. I decided to exploit this fear as much as possible. It took two men to pull off the creature for this film. Ben Chapman did the filming for the land scenes, and Riku Browning took the underwater scenes, having to hold his breath for up to four minutes at a time to get the right shot. Trivia, Browning was the only actor to portray the underwater monster in all the creature movies. Want more creature movie trivia? It took 20 years for the two men who played both sides of the creature to finally meet at a convention. The movie was released in 1954 as one of the first 3D films created by Universal Pictures. It Came From Outer Space was actually the first one released a year prior. Creature from the Black Lagoon grossed over a million dollars at the box office for only 79 minutes of screen time. The Big Six. These creatures are known for putting monsters on the map. To round out this historical group of icons, though, it's only fair to include these. The Invisible Man was released in 1933 based on the H.G. Wells book and put actor Claude Rains on the star's map with his first American performance of the witty and sadistic Dr. Jack Griffin and is remembered by, once again, state-of-the-art special effects of its time. The Phantom of the Opera which was originally made in 1925, starring Lon Chaney in the silent version, and again starring Claude Rains and Nelson Eddy in the 1943 version, being the first horror film in color. The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which was often crowned Universal's first monster, released in 1923 as mentioned at the top of this episode. The sets for this movie lasted for many years and can be seen in many other movies, including The Wolfman, which, by the way, in case you've been taking notes, means that both father and son appeared on the same set 
almost a quarter of a century apart. And finally, Jekyll and Hyde, which, by the way, was actually the first, the very first monster film by a very baby Universal, released in 1913, starring King Baggett, and was also the first to use lap-dissolve special effect techniques for the shots of human-to-monster transformation. While the stories and novels of things that go bump in the night have been around for decades, Universal harnessed it, processed it, brought it to our theaters and living rooms, making horror what it is today. New generations that are enjoying the next round of remakes and sequels may not realize where these frightening images came from, and the classics themselves might stir up a shiver or two, but the art form of creating the horror movie monster and its legacy is found at the feet of Universal Studios. Bag of Bones is researched and recorded by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed, copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.